I can hardly believe we're at episode 11 already. Uh, It's been almost three months of this podcasting luck and so far I'm just loving the conversations and the connections that this topic of self-doubt is sparking. Uh, Also, I've recently rejoined Twitter, so if you want to have more of a chat about the sweet minutiae of life, all things self-doubt and everything in between, I'm Sass Petherick over on the Twits, so do come and say hi. Right, lovely people, if you are looking for a practical first step to begin to minimise the way self-doubt is holding you back, today's episode is just for you. So grab a cup of tea, pull up your chair, let's get going. Welcome to Courage and Spice, the podcast for humans with self-doubt. I'm your host, Sass Petherick. Thanks so much for tuning in. Okay, everyone, today's episode is just me. Uh, I wanted to share with you something that I'm learning about self-doubt that feels like a bit of a game changer. And because I'm a huge fan of information that can be applied, I've taken this learning and turned it into an actual thing you can do today. So I'm going to talk a bit about what I'm learning, why I think it's so useful and important, and then we'll walk through how you can apply this. Uh, In the episode show notes for today, Today over at courageandspice.com you'll find a worksheet that I've created to help you do this. Okay so let's first get a bit of context here. If you listened to the very first episode of Courage and Spice you'll know about my theory that self-doubt is how we protect ourselves from psychological risk. So we start to take some steps or even imagine taking steps towards something that really matters to us. And if this contains even a small risk of rejection or disappointment, the amygdala part of our brain gets pinged. And the amygdala is like a risk manager part of ourselves. It manages the flight, fight, freeze response, as well as decision making, memory processing and emotional response. And every time I say that, it feels like the architect of our brains really skipped over the implications of this part of the design. Like, so you want to include decision making, emotions and memory all tied up in the same little node that manages fear, right? Seriously. Anyway, back to our brains. So the thing to remember is that the amygdala is a pretty unsophisticated thing and it will alert us to anything that it believes has the potential to harm us. And remember, our experience of self-doubt is phenomenological, right? It's completely personal and subjective based on our experiences, our memories, our desires, personality, and even how much sleep we had last night. So every person experiences self-doubt based on their specific circumstances. When we experience that alarm where the amygdala gets pinged, we go into protection mode and that's where the five P's of self-doubt come in. So it might mean that we respond by procrastinating, perfectionism, passive behaviours, proving yourself or paralysis. We get caught up in those rather than take the psychological risk, right? And this is how self-doubt is incredibly effective at keeping us safe. So if you want to learn a little bit more about how that works, please do go and listen to episode one, if only because it took me about 87 goes to record that episode. I know my perfectionism is showing. So to recap, the protector part of our psyche that's always braced for anyone or anything that could harm us senses some risk and sets off an alarm within us. 
And we feel that combination of body sensations, thoughts, emotions, that's our particular experience of self-doubt. It often feels pretty bloody awful and that's the whole point because then we take action or inaction in order to protect ourselves. Now it can feel really disillusioning because not only are you not making progress towards the thing you want but there is this big barrier in your way that's self-doubt and so now there's kind of two things to feel terrible about. So how do we begin to shift this? Well I want to take a little sidestep for a moment and I want to tell you about how I discovered this key kind of tool, this what I'm calling a surprising kryptonite um, for how we can begin to unhook ourselves from the grip of self-doubt. So picture, if you will, me sitting at our kitchen table on a Friday afternoon way back in 2015, and all you lovely perfectionists can have a look on Instagram at my actual kitchen table if this helps you visualize correctly. Anyhow, I'm standing over this table and it's covered in post-it notes of all different colors. These post-it notes contain the findings of my research interviews where I talk to people at length and in detail about their self-doubt. And at this precise moment, my brain is doing that thing when you see an optical illusion because I'm starting to see this pattern. Now, I used a research method called interpretive phenomenological analysis, which sounds pretty fancy, but it basically means that it focuses on the experience, the context, and the meaning making of the research participants. And I'm a huge fan of this method because it requires the researcher to approach their study without any preconceived ideas of what will unfold. The purpose is to interpret the experience of the participants as closely as possible to the way they describe it so that we can understand a bit more about the phenomenon we're we're investigating, which in our case is self-doubt. Now, it's a really tricky thing to do because it's so dependent on the research participants being able to describe their experience in detail in different ways. And it means you can't use a random sample of humans like lots of other research methods. You actually choose participants purposefully because they have a deep experience of the research topic, self-doubt. So IPA takes this very rich and deep approach. The idea is to find a way in to what we're uh, researching, what we're studying, to get as much information about each person's experience as possible. So there is also a massive dependence on the researcher's ability, i.e. me, to interpret their experience. So as I'm standing at the kitchen table and the the post-it notes are coded with everything that seemed to me to be important from those interviews, I'm starting to look for themes. I'm looking for what is common or even contradictory about each participant's experience and what that could tell us about the phenomena of self-doubt. And what I was beginning to see was this pattern in how the research participants described self-doubt. Now, I found that they all used amorphous descriptors many times. God, academic language can really be a pile of wank, can't it? 
I'm really sorry. What I mean by this is that they described their experience of self-doubt using words like always, everything, never, everyone, every time and forever. Right, so there was this sense of self-doubt being this kind of amorphous cloud of anxiety and worry and concern, um, but it, it was kind of all-encompassing, a very generalized way of describing their experience. And this makes really um, good sense when we remember that unsophisticated warning alarm when we're in the general vicinity of risk, right? There is just this kind of alarm that goes off and it's the sense of, oh, something is not right here. So this they, way they were kind of describing or giving words to what that actually feels like. And at the time, as I was beginning to analyze my research, I really wasn't sure what this all meant. Um, and to be honest, this finding didn't even make the final cut of my uh, key findings in my master's dissertation. But it did seem really interesting. Um, and it was something that stayed with me. So in the years since, I've coached with more and more people about their self-doubt, and I have found that this pattern of using amorphous descriptors keeps coming up. So earlier this year, when I was creating my group program, which is uh, your self-belief map, and it's all about how to navigate through self-doubt, I revisited those research findings, and I was reminded of this pattern. And I've now worked with around about 50 people in the self-belief map program. And it's been this really incredibly powerful process of helping people to make sense of their very personal and subjective experience of self-doubt and begin to cultivate self-belief. So in many ways, this is a process of sort of testing my research findings and allowing them to evolve as I spend more time with, with, with different people. And here's what I now know for sure about self-doubt. It begins to crumble under the weight of specificity, right? Self-doubt loves those amorphous descriptors. It, it's like fuel, right? So when we say things like, I never finish things, everybody thinks I'm boring. It's always me that goes along with everybody else. You know, th those are the kinds of thoughts or beliefs that we have that self-doubt kind of gives us and that we then keep finding evidence to prove that, that it's true. But specificity is like kryptonite to self-doubt. So let's see how this works. Now, one of the things to kind of hang on to here is that I imagine you don't feel self-doubt in every area of your life all at once every day. Right? There are probably aspects of your day-to-day -day existence that you don't even think about or you feel entirely neutral about. There are likely to be things that you do or think about doing that you feel quite comfortable with. And there are even things that you actually feel quite, well, can I use the C word, confident in your own abilities. So when we're describing our experience of self-doubt, even when it pops up all the time, we're using words like always, everything, never, everyone, every time, forever, those amorphous descriptors are never actually true, right? And there is an enormous amount of relief in knowing that that is a fact. 
But I suspect that the reason we do this is because self-doubt is often this kind of unconscious process that's infused with memory of past hurts and disappointments, about beliefs of who we are and what we're capable of and how the world works, what's expected of us and what will be accepted by us. That protection mechanism is just ticking away in the background, looking out for risk, kind of scanning the horizon, and then bang, we'll find ourselves in this kind of self-doubt storm where everything is shit and this always happens. So we can feel like it's true, but it just isn't. And what I have found is that by getting very specific about the self-doubt storm means that you start to make space for you to get curious And the grooviest thing about curiosity is that it's associated with that creative, imaginative part of the brain, the right hemisphere, which is an entirely separate thing from the amygdala. So we can literally, quite literally in our minds, step out of the storm and look semi-objectively at the cause of it, at what it's protecting you from. And one of the reasons why I believe this is so useful is that we begin to doubt our self-doubt. We just stop believing that it's a fact. Okay, so let's see how this works in practice. And over on Courage and Spice, if you zip over to the this episode from the front page link, you'll find a worksheet where we can work through this together. So feel free to just pause me, I'll wait. Okay, so you should now be looking at a PDF called the Wheel of Self-Doubt Worksheet. If you've ever worked with a co-active coach before, you might have come across the Wheel of Life tool. Uh, So I've used this concept to look specifically at self-doubt because I think it's such a lovely, simple little tool. Okay, so we want to think about this wheel as a metaphor for your life. And you'll see that each of the spokes is a kind of area of your life. Now, each of these is named in the template, but feel free to just cross out anything that doesn't feel applicable to you and add in something else or or just leave it blank. You can just make it your own. So what we want to do here is to use this tool to start getting increasingly specific about your self-doubt. So to start, just go through each of these spokes, these areas of your life, and see how much self-doubt is associated with them. So you just want to go with your gut feel and score each of those life areas out of 10, where 10 represents an area that self-doubt happens quite frequently or really intensely. Um, Try not to overthink it, just do it for you right now today, and you can always go back and re-score this on on a different day. So once you have scored each of those spokes, each of those areas of the wheel, um, just draw a line across all of your scores. So what you will end up with is these spokes that are at different levels. And the idea is that this is a kind of makes for a rickety journey through life, right? Because uh, we never, usually, we don't have a nice, even 
score for every area of our life. So this just gives us a way in. This gives us a a simple way of looking at where specifically self-doubt is showing up for you. And now we want to use this idea of specificity and just take it even deeper. So just choose one area of your your wheel, one high-scoring spoke of your life, and we're going to get even deeper. We're going to use some inquiry questions to look at how specificity can help you to unhook yourself from self-doubt. Okay, so I want to use a a real-life example from a coaching client who I'm going to call Esther. That is not her real name. But I wanted to kind of bring this to life with a real example because I think that can sometimes help just see where we're going with this. So on Esther's wheel, the area of work was scoring a really high sort of 9 or 10 for where self-doubt was showing up for her. So we'll go through this reflection process together and I'll share with you um, the specifics of Esther's experience and I'm just going to paraphrase based on what I remember from our coaching calls. So the first question is, how does self-doubt show up in this area of your life? And this is the opportunity for you to let it all out, right? Go for a stream of consciousness. Just tell yourself the truth, let it all come out. There's no, no one's going to read this, okay? It's just for you. So how does self-doubt show up in this area of your life? Now for Esther, she said, I've just been promoted to lead the team I've been a member of for the last few years. I feel increasingly anxious in this new role. It's not what I expected at all. I was really excited to get it. I really wanted it. But now I'm finding that I have to make a ton more decisions based on not very much information. And I constantly feel torn between my boss and my team. I feel like I'm failing everywhere and two people in my team who used to be good friends we'd often have lunch together and gossip about work and socialize after work this has definitely changed I know they talk about me using the online chat at work all the time I feel paranoid like everyone is waiting for me to screw up so that was Esther's stream of consciousness now Once you've written yours, what I want you to do is to go through and underline all the amorphous descriptors that you've used. So any words that are kind of generalized, things like always, everything, never, everyone, every time, forever. Any words that feel like they belong in that group of amorphous descriptors, uh, just underline those so you start to see where you might be uh, in that place of generalizing your experience. So it feels kind of overwhelming and a bit intractable. Okay, so the second question is, what does this remind you of? And this is where you start to go back into your past and get curious about the memories, the past events, anything that might be contributing to your self-doubt here, where you start to construct a view of this is how the world works. So you might have had a similar feeling, similar emotions, thoughts or experiences. It all counts. So let me give you Esther's example so you can kind of see where we go with this. So Esther said, 
I was always on the outside of friendships at school. I never really felt like I fit in, or if I did, it was because I was being who they wanted me to be. But that felt really unclear, and it changed all the time. You know what teenage girls are like. And I think that's why I really enjoyed school. The rules are quite clear. I knew what was expected of me. I knew how to do well and what to do to get the grades I needed. I was able to enjoy it because I knew what I was doing. Right, so you start to, once you reflect, you start to see how there are similar experiences that you've been through that have often contributed to this feeling of uh, a generalized uh, self-doubt. So self-doubt is never created in a vacuum, right? There's always something behind it. So the third question is, can you sum up what is at risk for you? So in this question, we're getting to the heart of your self-doubt in this specific area of your life. So you want to read over your previous answers and just try to sum up the core of that psychological risk. Now for Esther, she said, I have no clarity over what is expected of me from my boss and I may be losing my connection with two people who I thought were friends. Right, so you get increasingly clear and increasingly specific. So if you can sum this up in one to two sentences, you know you're onto a winner. You're not telling a story here, right? You're just trying to sum it up. Okay, fourth question, uh, and there's only there's only six, so we're, we're nearly there. What do you do to avoid the risk? So this is about how you are protecting yourself. This is the very specific nature of your self-doubt and it will help to inform what is happening and why. So you may want to just play through what you think, feel, say and do when you feel that self-doubt storm rising. So in Esther's case, she said, well, I definitely, definitely avoid any kind of confrontation or risk of being found out is not coping. So I'll tell my boss that we're all fine and then work really hard to make sure everything is done on time. I had to redo the monthly report that my team member did because it wasn't great, but I couldn't face talking to her about it. She'll never know because it goes to my boss and then up the chain. But I feel anxious when I see my two friends are chatting together online. What are they saying about me? Right, so there is this sense from Esther that she's avoiding a ton of confrontation or the risk of being found out. Um, she's redoing work. She's uh, kind of over over delivering and taking responsibility for things that aren't hers. Uh, and she's constantly feeling anxious when she sees these two friends that used to be her friend but are now people that she manages. All right, so what we're trying to do here is just get a sense of how does self-doubt pre- prevent you from actually being with the risk. Okay, penultimate question, what choices do you have apart from avoiding the risk? So this is where we're starting to open up some specific possibilities for the choices that you have even if, and this is important, even if they seem like a terrible idea. Now the top tip is to get really specific about why this matters or how this will help you. Okay, so in Esther's case, we looked at two specific choices that she had around these two areas. And the more specific you can get, the better. 
So she said, well, I could talk to my team members about how hard I am finding this, um, that I, f- I can tell them that I feel sad we don't spend as much time together. Um, that feels really bloody hard, but it is a choice I have. And she also said, I could ask my boss for help. She's new too. So I imagine she's finding this just as difficult. But I need to have a much clearer understanding of what she expects from me so I can be successful. I need that structure. And I could also ask her about some training or maybe mentoring for how to have these difficult conversations with the team. So what we're starting to do is open up that curiosity, right? What could I do? What choices do I have? Um, And again, it's a way of sort of objectively stepping outside of the self-doubt itself and looking at what's available to you, what resources you already have within you. Now, the last question is about bringing this to life. So what is the safest, smallest, most doable step you can take right now? And this is how you start to bring it all to life. This is how you diffuse the power self-doubt has over this area of your life. Because taking action will help you to test these generalized beliefs that suggest that avoiding the risk is necessary. Right, so the top tip here is to be specific about when you will do it and share that with someone. Now, in Esther's case, she said, okay, the smallest doable step, and this took a while for us to come up with. So um, if it feels in any way uh, uncertain or icky or somehow more discomforting than the doubt itself, then you're probably going too big. So go really, really gently. So Esther's smallest step is that she is going to chat to her team just like she used to about last night's TV or something. No big confrontation, no work chat, just to kind of reconnect. And that felt really doable to her and she was kind of excited to do it the next day. Right, so it's not like you have to then go, okay, I've articulated this area that is a really big, scary thing. I'm going to face it head on. Sometimes going around the side, but giving yourself a specific task to do and understanding why that matters, like where that is actually taking you around these these choices that you have um, about what you could do apart from avoiding the risk. Just what is the safest, smallest step that will get you there? So to recap, we started with this kind of amorphous cloud of woe, so where Esther was feeling like everything was falling apart at work, and as we've gone through these six questions, we've just got increasingly specific so that she ends up with an understanding of what is at risk for her, what her self-doubt is protecting her from, and what she's doing to avoid the risk. And it kind of starts to make sense, right? It makes sense when we read or hear Esther's story that she would rewrite a colleague's report uh, when you consider how much of a risk it felt to Esther to actually discuss this with the person. So even when you'll find yourself doing something illogical, even a bit mad, there's always a really good reason why. So where we've ended up is that Essa has this really doable action that she can take immediately that will help to diffuse this risk. The most important thing is that it feels psychologically safe to do. 
right? So self-doubt is all about protecting us from this perceived psychological risk. And it does this by making us feel that kind of subjective amorphous discomfort. It's very generalized. And by getting increasingly specific, we start to disentangle ourselves from that amorphousness. We use some objectivity to look at what's going on. And then we take one specific action that feels psychologically safe. Now, when you start doing this consistently, the, the impact of that is, is kind of amazing because you start to expand your tolerance for risk and you have new actual factual evidence that the risk is either no longer true or it just needs updating. Okay, lovely people, if you want to share your small, safe, totally doable action with me, come tweet me up. Let's have this conversation uh, in, a, in a place where we now have 280 characters to play with. Uh, I'm excited to have more of a conversation about how this is working for you and what comes up for you as you go through this process. So you can see the show notes for this episode by going to courageandspice.com and as usual, you can subscribe, rate, five stars only please and review Courage and Spice, the podcast for humans with self-doubt wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time.